uh, get started two things. Uh, the, the optional class this week, um, following this one, uh, which will be, I think, week three, four, doing predestination. Um, so if you're f- even familiar with the idea, um, what we're going to be doing this morning is talking about objections to predestination. Um, so how, might you, how you might answer someone who would say, well, what about this? What about that? What about this? So even if you're, let's say, comfortable with the idea, but you're curious about how, how you might respond to certain objections, uh, this would be the week to, to stick around for that. Um, and then this morning, we're going to be focusing on, for this session, on justification and adoption. So to kind of get things uh, started, uh, if you remember, I think it was week one, we looked at this uh, kind of diagram. And we said that when we think about uh, spiritual, um, let's say, think about what it means to be a Christian, the ch- tr- uh, Christian or the church, we want to start with what is unchanging, which is God's truth. And we summarize that by saying gospel. And then once we understand the gospel, then we can move and begin to talk about who we are, like in terms of our identity in Christ, and that's what we're going to be focusing on this morning, and, and we're going to be here in this identity piece um, for the next three weeks. Uh, so again, up to this point, we've been on gospel. First three weeks, it was like introduction, it's been the last two weeks really just kind of clarifying and defining the gospel. What is the gospel? Um, so we talked about it as uh, gospel is truth and gospel is story. And then last week we were talking about the centrality of the gospel, how you see it kind of not just in the New Testament, but you see it throughout the scriptures as a whole. It's not like God's plan B, but was God's plan from the very beginning. And then so today we're making the turn and we're shifting into this, this area here where we want to talk about identity. And so that's going to be this week and then the next two weeks. This week specifically, justification and adoption. Next two weeks, we're going to be focusing on aspects of sanctification. But in order to understand what's going to come in the next two weeks, this morning is absolutely essential in terms of understanding justification, adoption, and why, why for example, those doctrines are so, so important for us. So by way of review... Um, when we talk about uh, the gospel being embraced, last week we looked at this diagram as well, and we were talking about our conversion. And so I want to just kind of give a little, maybe a brief overview. What do, when we say conversion, what do we mean by that? And, and so there's really three pieces or three kind of steps in broad terms that you want to talk about. Um, more or less, I would actually say four. So when one experiences this, uh, what the Bible talks about the eyes to see, ears to hear kind of experience. Jesus in, for example, Gospel of John, when he's talking about Nicodemus, he says one must be born again. Um, that term as well is kind of conveying this idea of that God works a change in us by the Spirit so that we have eyes to see and ears to hear, or we are born again. The theological term for that is called regeneration. And regeneration. Regeneration is the, the work of God in turning a person who is inclined to sin, turning their heart towards him. And then the response of that regenerative work begins with repentance. Repentance is simply, uh, the word literally means to turn or change one's mind. So if you were to think of an analogy, it's like your, your, the whole course of your life, all your thoughts and your intentions and your wills and your, and your desires are heading in one trajectory in opposition to God. And then repentance is a turning, a turning from that and towards God. Um, so with it comes this notion of, uh, if you want to say humility or being humbled, recognizing the wrong and turning from those wrongs and turning towards God's, turn toward God. And we would say you turn towards God in repentance by faith. Uh, faith is this declaration of belief and trust in Jesus as the one who has lived the life we should have lived, died the death we die, deserve to die, 
and is risen in victory and in vindication over sin, death, and Satan so that we might be forgiven and reconciled to God. Um, and, and through and only through Christ are we able to be embraced and welcomed into God's presence. Um, then uh, faith, what, what is important here, and we're going we're gonna to talk about this as we move forward. When we talk about faith, we're talking about receiving and resting on Christ's righteousness or Christ and his righteousness um, and that that alone is the instrument of our justification. And, and here's why it's important, because there is the Bible talks about faith in different ways. And so we're going to detail this more, but I want to emphasize it now. So there's faith in Christ for my salvation. And that's this receiving and resting in and upon Christ as the one who justifies us. And then there's faith more as an active expression of obedience. Does that make sense? And so we want to distinguish those things carefully, because it's this receiving and resting on Christ which is the instrument of our justification, not our obedience, not our works, not our faithfulness, not our faithfulness. Because the Bible actually tells us that we are what? Unfaithful. But God is faithful. God is the one who justifies. We don't justify ourselves. So anyway, so you have repentance, faith, and then finally, obedience. And obedience is the outworking of the transformation that God is bringing about in us, beginning with regeneration, Repentance, faith in Christ, justification, adoption, which we're going to be talking about today. And then the outworking of those things is described through obedience or sanctification. And again, we're going to be talking about sanctification or what it looks like to walk in obedience to Christ over the next two weeks. But this morning, we're going to be talking about the gospel applied through justification and, and adoption. And what's important to understand is that at conversion, at conversion, you or anyone who places their faith in Christ, is justified before God because he has bridged the gap between your sinfulness and God's holiness. He put himself where only you deserve to be so that you can be in a place that only he, Jesus Christ, deserves to be, which is now to be treated as God's own sons and daughters through adoption. And so this is what we're going to be focusing on and unpacking today so that we can lay um, a really solid foundation so that we, when we talk about, for example, what does it mean... To, to, to be a disciple of Jesus, to be obedient? What does it mean for the church to be faithful to Christ's call? We don't kind of blur the lines between what God has done and what God calls us to do in response to what he's done. Because the, throughout the history of the church, and for us, one of the things that we always want to do is we want to we blur those lines. It's the default, let's say, nature of our heart to try to justify ourselves, to rely on religious or irreligious uh, self-justification. And we talked about this in the, in the I think it was last week. There, there's, um, there's a way of responding, which is to trust in Christ. And then there's a way of, which is to, to respond where we're ultimately trusting in ourselves to earn God's acceptance or approval through either religious uh, activity, etc. Or we just blatantly reject it and we kind of go off and we call that irreligious rebellion. Um, so, beginning, we're going to start with, obviously, justification. So justification is to have right legal standing before God. To have right legal standing before God. And so there's various ways the Bible talks about <clears throat> salvation, but specifically when we're talking about justification, think of a legal, it's a legal term, right? And God is judge. And when we stand before God as judge, if God says we're justified, it's mean, it means we're being declared innocent, declared righteous. And justification is an instantaneous act of God. It's something that God does for us. 
where he sees our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. And thus, because Christ's righteousness is now imputed, we're going to talk about what that means here in a little bit, to us, we are declared and seen as righteous in God's sight. As righteous in God's sight. Um, it is a one-time event uh, that could not be any more momentous. Um, so here's just a couple of texts, for example, that highlight what justification entails. We're born again. We're made alive. We're transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. We're forgiven of our sins. We're delivered from wrath. We're reconciled to God, and we have passed from death to life. And it's important to emphasize that this justifying work on behalf of us, and this is where it becomes kind of key. And here we go. Is not. I want you to pay attention to the language here. Justification is not for anything wrought in us or in them, right? Or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, nor by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but, and this is key, by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them, they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God. And if you're curious, this is actually being pulled from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, uh, paragraph 4, and, and it's, it's defining what it means to be justified by faith. So, this word imputation. Uh, in, in the act of justification, there's what, what occurs is called a double imputation. And so we would say that our sins are imputed to Christ. And Christ's righteousness and obedience is imputed to us. And there's this exchange that occurs. So to kind of put some, uh, let's say, a, a visual representation on it. Can I have you as a volunteer? Sure. Come on up. So come stand right here. All right, so standing up here, this represents us in the sign. Is, is representative, let's say, of all our sin, all your sin, past, present, and future, right? And so in the act of justification, when one places their faith in Jesus, what happens is, so if this now represents all his righteousness, right? So when we place our faith in Christ, imputation, this is a visual representation. Our sin is taken in, by Christ upon himself, and his righteousness is given to us. Now, this, all our sin, past, present, future, it's a done deal. Perfect, like we're, we're, we're now seen as perfect, holy, righteous, pure in God's sight. Now, here's the key. This righteousness that now belongs to him is not his. It's an alien righteousness. It is Christ's. And when God looks at him, it's not his obedience that God sees. It's Christ's. Christ's righteousness and active obedience is imputed or given to those who place their faith in him. And their sins are taken from them and they're done away with. And the reason this is so important, and we're going we're gonna to unpack this more and more, is that what we tend to want to do is we want to bring back in our obedience as the grounds by which we're justified in God's sight. And it has, that has nothing to do with it. The obedience by which we are justified 
The obedience by which we are declared righteous, the obedience by which God receives us, is not ours, but Christ's, given to us by grace through faith. And this is why in the Westminster thing, we just looked at this quote up here. Um, it says, not for anything wrought in them, done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, nor by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them. Now, um, give our volunteer a hand of applause. Here's the kicker. While the intricacies of, of let's say, the doctrine of justification may on, on the surface seem insignificant. The thing that we have to understand is that this doctrine of justification remains a foundational doc doctrinal position of the Reformation's retrieval and understanding of the gospel. Um, so if you read the Institutes, for example, John Calvin states that justification is the main hinge on which religion turns. For unless you first of all grasp what your relationship to God is and the nature of his judgment concerning you, you have neither a foundation on which to establish your salvation nor one on which to build piety towards God. We don't use the word piety anymore, but think of building an ongoing, growing relationship of devotion to God. And here's why this is important. Uh, we always want to justify ourselves. And we are always going to, until Christ brings us home, because of indwelling sin, that desire to justify oneself, that desire to have more, let's say, value in and of ourselves, that, that desire to want to, to be able to esteem ourselves, to take pride in ourselves, is always going to creep in. And throughout history, this doctrine, especially since it's, it's always under attack. It's always under attack. We're always, wanna, we're, we're always wanting to bring in some work that we do, whether it's obedience, whether it's we attribute uh, faith as being ours, etc. We're always wanting to kind of take away from the, the, the Scripture's teaching with respect to that our justification is only through Christ and, and that the righteousness and obedience that we have that justifies us before God is not ours, but Christ and His alone. So, this is essential. And here's why. Once we understand this, this, this idea, this, this justifying work of God on our behalf, what comes with it simultaneously, but on the other side, if you want to say the, the step one is justification, but there's, there's additional, let's say, blessings and privileges that come now with being declared in Christ and being seen not just, uh, well, let's say it this way. God doesn't just love us. He makes us worthy of his love in Christ. And that's, that's much different. We want to make ourselves and think of ourselves as worthy of God's love in and of ourselves, but we're not. But the way God loves us is even better because he makes us worthy of his love in Christ. Now here's where this is key. Adoption. We're justified, and in our justification, and in our union with Christ, we're also adopted. And adoption is a work of God on our behalf, where you have been claimed and adopted as son or daughter, and declared to be a co-heir with Christ. Figuratively speaking, we could say you've been given a new name. And that name comes with all the associated rights and privileges and blessings. And this is a profound declaration of Scripture. Profound. So, for example, we see this in Ephesians chapter 1. And I believe we looked at this text the very first week. We were talking about what was God's eternal plan and purpose for the church. 
He says, He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So in God's, let's say, plan, and that's what we talked about the first week. What, what, why did God make anything? Why, why did God establish the church? And what are God's purposes for the creation and for, for, for the church? And the thing we were talking about is that ultimately God's desire was to create the church and that the church would be given to his son as a gift. And then, and then for example, when you get to Revelation, it uses marital terms. It talks about us. there's a consummation that will occur at the end of the ages when we're raised in glory and we're united with Christ. And so the experience now for Christians where we're given the Spirit, we're justified, we're adopted in this life, it's described as being kind of the first fruits of what's to come. But one of the foundational, I think, and beautiful truths of Scripture is this idea of adoption. Of adoption. That we're now no longer sons of disobedience or children of wrath, but we've been adopted, we've been given the righteousness of Christ, our sins have been taken away from us and done away with, and that we are now declared forever unchanging like it is it is a done deal we're his sons and his daughters and this is why understanding justification is so important and one of the things we're going to talk about how is how one of the things we get tripped up on especially in today's age is that we tend to think of if god disciplines me it means god's rejecting me and it's not god is our father now and any good father disciplines his children and if you don't understand justification and adoption, you're always going to interpret not only God's discipline, but even, let's say, commands in Scripture as being God rejecting us. Make sense? And there's, there's all manner of unhealthy, what I'd call, psychologies of, of, of spiritual growth that, that are kind of prevalent in our culture today because we, we fail to grasp the, the foundational significance of justification and adoption. Um, Speaking of the importance of this, this doctrine, J.I. Packer, in his book, uh, Knowing God, says this, Adoption is the highest blessing of the gospel because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. Justification is a forensic idea conceived in terms of law. Remember we said justification is a legal term, right? Viewing God as judge. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship and establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God as judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is a greater. Now, I want to hit the pause button because one of the other things that tends to trip this idea up is this conceptual idea of God as Father. Reason being, um, and, and the book of Hebrews actually addresses this when it talks about God disciplines those whom we love. And it makes this kind of, almost this statement where it says, we have, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us as pretty much as they, as they saw fit. But we have a heavenly Father who disciplines us in love. Um, so when I was growing up, for example, uh, I had a group of about eight friends. Of my eight, eight close friends, out of that entire group, um, I had one other friend other than myself 
who didn't come from a home that had been uh, just radically disorienting through divorce and other tragedies. I had multiple friends who didn't know their dads. I had one friend who his dad had remarried and he was like my best friend and his stepmother was abusive, physically for sure, potentially other ways, not really sure. So I watched that take a toll on him and then when he tried to appeal to his father for, for concern and care, his father rejected him. And so when we talk about these ideas of this notion of God as Father, and this is true not just for these people I'm talking about, for us as well, we've all been imprinted in some maybe positive and other negative ways by our own fathers, through their absence, through their abuse, through their neglect, right? But then some, sometimes positive ways, like we saw our, fa our own fathers, let's say, be uh, diligent to work hard to provide for us, to care for us. I mean, however imperfectly, there are, there's a mix that we receive. And we always want to, not, not that we want to, but we just do it. We impose our experience and our, our thinking about what it means to be a father because of our own fathers. And if we're fathers as well, because of our own failures as fathers, we, we put that on God. We need to understand that's not who God is as father. And when we talk about adoption. God doesn't relate to us like our earthly fathers. He's always for our good. And this is so important and so hard to understand. Um, like... One of, I think one of the, the biggest tragedies of our current day in society is the, just the experience of fatherlessness. Of father, I mean, and, when I'm, and this isn't even something like, I mean, the Bible always holds fatherhood and, and the experience as, as, a, as a good. But the interesting thing is, is there, it's like, well, ah, shocking, right? There's been numerous studies that have been done and, and the one thing that's, that's more attributive to well-being and health of children is the presence of a father. Just the presence. Even a bad dad is better than no dad. And it's crazy. But because of that, when we talk about God as father, we, we receive that through this twisted lens because of our own experiences. So we need to understand that God, as our father, is not like our fathers. He's a good father. He's a loving father. He disciplines us for our good, not because of his own insecurities, because we're an inconvenience, because he's having a bad day, etc. He disciplines us for our good, and he walks with us as sons and daughters to bring us um, to completion in Christ. So, it is our justification and our adoption that form the basis of our relationship with God. And here's why this is important. Justification and adoption are things that God does for us. It's a one-sided thing. He does it for us. The theological term, they'll say there's, it's called monergism. So there's monergism and synergism. Monergism, monergistic, is God does it. There's no synergy. There's no other party bringing anything to the table in this. Right? Uh, the things that tend to muck this up. So, for example, if we were to go into the details of a Roman Catholic understanding of justification, they have a synergistic view of justification. It's faith and works that leads to our justification. And the Reformation said, no, it's faith that justifies. Now, they would say faith is never alone. There are other graces that come with it. But the foundation of our relationship with God is a monergistic thing that God does for us in totality, justifying and adopting us. And what we're going to talk about in the coming weeks, our sanctification is a synergistic reality. 
where God gives us His Spirit, and we're to walk in submission and humility and cooperation with the Spirit so that we might grow in Christ. And again, we're going to be talking about this in the coming weeks. But we need to understand that our sanctification and our perception of how well we're doing spiritually does not reflect, change, or undo, improve, negate, diminish our justification and adoption. Does that make sense? Because those are things that God has done for us. They're a foundational thing, and you can take a pickaxe to them. But like Paul says in Romans 8, who then? Right? He, he goes through this beautiful description of all these things, and he's like, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Why? Because it's something that God has done for us to justify us and adopt us. So we have to get that. We have to un- understand that. Because if we don't, um, as, we, as we think about what it means to have a relationship with God, we're going to get squirrely and fall back into patterns of self-reliance instead of resting and trusting in God's mercy. Make sense? So, justification, adoption. And so... I'm going to turn a corner and get a little bit more, let's say, conceptual or practical to just to try to help. Because I know sometimes we're, if you're like me, visuals can be, can be helpful. And then we're going to close by talking about what are the implications then of, of being justified and adopted in terms of our new identity in Christ. So first, uh, for the longest while, like I always viewed my relationship with God kind of in these terms. And so this is why I call it a, it's a traditional diagram. Maybe you've never done this, but like if I were to write down a little thing, I would say, well, this is kind of how it is. Like there's God and there's me. We're in a good relationship, you know, and, and I'm, I'm now, you know, through spiritual disciplines, prayer, reading the Bible, being, worshiping at church, serving, using my gifts, etc. Um, I'm doing these things to grow closer to God, to, to grow closer with Jesus, to, to follow Jesus, etc. But there was always kind of this perception that there was a, you know, and I wouldn't have maybe said it this, this clearly, but there was a distance. Now, I'm not saying that this way of thinking is wrong, so long as the starting point for the relationship and understanding our motivations for growing closer to God are the completed work of Christ on our behalf. But the more I continue to kind of think on these things and wrestle with what does it mean to be in Christ and what does it mean to be justified and adopted and to be given a new name or a new identity. Paul, like for example, says we're, new, we're now new creatures in Christ. We're a new creation, right? What does that mean? And so this is kind of where, how I think of it now. And so the Bible has revealed, God has revealed to himself that he is one God, one, one being in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And the scriptures discuss and describe us being, Paul, for example, says we're in Christ. We've been united with Christ. We're now in union with Christ. We've been adopted as sons and daughters in Christ. And so if you think of this image here as representing the, the God, God in his fullness and in, in, in his Trinitarian self, what we see here is more of an emphasis on the justifying and adoptive work of God through Christ, which is why we're now in this little bubble with the Son, if that makes sense. We've been grafted into, united with, we have been made one with Christ. So when God sees us, he doesn't see us as we are, but he sees us as Christ is. Make sense? And so when we think about our relationship with God, there's not a gap to be closed. We've been literally brought up. Paul says we're seated in the heavenlies. We're seated in the heavenly places in Christ at the throne next at the right hand of God. And so he uses all this kind of like, 
almost seems mystical language, but nevertheless, he's, he's trying to communicate a, a reality of our standing and, 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 and how that's been changed for us in Christ. And so positionally, we're not distant from God. Objectively, we're not distant from God. We are in Christ, and being in Christ, we are now brought up into the inter-Trinitarian relationship. God, the Father, has given us the Spirit, and we've been grafted into Christ. And so I think this conveys this idea that instead of trying to, to be, become something, we are something, and we're, we're trying to learn now how to live out of this new identity in Christ. Does it make sense? So instead of a striving for, we're striving out of. And typically that's like strive for, it's like, and I'm not saying that's a wrong way of conceptualizing some things. But I think a better way of thinking about it is that God has done this for us. This is who you now are. So now strive out of, live out of what God has done for you. Make sense? It's not that I'm trying to be, become this. It's I am that. And I've still got to work out what that now means. And we're going to talk more about that in the coming weeks. Um, I'll, I'll, go, I'll bring it up again. We've got, we got time. So if, if we were to say, here, here's a way of thinking about it, um, using adoption as the analogy. Everyone in here knows Jeff, who Jeff Bezos, Jeff Bezos is, right? right? Super wealthy guy. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think if your last name was Bezos, you'd have some privileges and opportunities afforded to you that you don't have now? Of course, right? Why? Well, because your last name is Bezos and you have access to all this wealth and all these other things, right? Now, let's say Bezos is on vacation. He comes down to South Florida, happens to see some kid on the side of the road slinging drugs. And he just goes up and has this conversation. He's like, why are you doing this? The kid's like, well, you know, my, my parents are you know, dead. I live with my uncle. He doesn't really take care of me. I'm hungry, I need to make some money, and I couldn't get a job, so I'm out here selling drugs to make some money to take care of myself and my little sister. And he's like, and he's, let's say he's heartbroken by that, and he says, you know what, come with me. Takes him to the courthouse, goes in, and Bezos adopts this child as his son. Brings him home with him. Now he's living with him. How much objectively has just changed for that child's life? Everything. Everything. Yeah. Everything. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that child's still going to live out of old patterns? Do you still think that child's still yeah. going to have trouble trusting? He's going to yeah. act harmful. He's going to, he's going to do things that don't line up with what has objectively changed in his life. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But is he, does he have to strive to become Bezos' son? No, because that's done. That's a done deal. Does he, have to, does he have to strive, let's say, to now have that name, that new name? No, it's been given to him. It's an objective legal fact. <laughs> with all rights, privileges, and blessing. Make sense? Mm -hmm. And so when we say we're adopted and we're brought into relationship with God, this is what I say, we're not striving for, we're striving out of. Because that, like, use that analogy, that, that child would have to, to now strive to adjust his life to the new realities that are a done deal. And just so for us who are in Christ. Um... Anyway, I could go on and on about that because that, that's the gospel. Like that's, and that's what we miss. That's what we miss. Our hearts are idol factories and we're so prone to sin and self-reliance. God, but rest in what God has done for us. So, gospel applied. Gospel applied. 
our new identity through our union with Christ. And so here's where we're going to make a little bit of a turn. And what I want to say is that, so when we're in Christ, we're given a new identity, right? So using that analogy, we've been given a new name. Um, based completely on who Jesus is and what he's accomplished for us through his death and resurrection. Now, kind of a cautionary word. Identity is not a word you're going to find in the Bible. It's a modern term. Um, but I think it's a helpful one to appropriate and use because it, it helps us to maybe, say, convey what's meant by this idea of adoption and being united with Christ. <clears throat> but what's important is that uh, we, un- we don't understand it in, let's say, purely modern terms. There's a, a book that um, I'm, I'm almost done with. It's, it's written by this guy, Alan Noble, and it's called You Are Not Your Own. And he's actually uh, he's pulling from, it's uh, actually have the thing in the notes here, 1 Corinthians uh, 6, 19 through 20. So when Paul's writing to the church and he's addressing uh, sexual sins in the church, and, and think of it, it's not just those, but any sin at all, he says to them this, he goes, do you not know that your body is the temple <clears throat> temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And so when we we talk about identity, so Alan Noble gives this caution. He warns that most, this is a quote, right? Most modern people have a secular understanding of identity, where identity has more to do with lifestyle and image than personhood. Christ becomes just another better identity. And I think he's correct. And here's why. We have to avoid the danger of treating Christ in our relationship with him like we would a t-shirt. Something that we put on and take off whenever it's convenient for us or suits us. And so when we're speaking of identity, we need to think more in terms of, let's say, uh, personhood. And that our union, and in our union with Christ, we've been objectively reconstituted as a new person. Make sense? Mm-hmm. So it's not like we're not talking about lifestyle. We're not talking about anything surfacey, lifestyle, image, influence. Like it's it's like a in inward working out sort of change. We're literally reconstituted as a new person. But for modern nomenclature, I think identity. It's just a better way of understanding it, so long as we don't fall into the trap of, of thinking of it in purely secular terms of like, well, it's kind of like um, this image that I put out there for other people to see. It's, it's an internal shift and transformation that, that, that we'll spend the rest of our lives working out. Um, so our new, our new life in Christ as children of God. So we're just going to close by talking about... Um, four, let's say, descriptors that you'll find articulated in Scripture. Now, these four descriptors are not exhaustive by any means, but I do feel like they're helpful for two reasons. Number one is is they give us um, some measure of, let's say, definition, so that when we talk about having a a new identity in Christ, it's not this kind of undefined, nebulous, ethereal thing, right? Like, let's put some Let's, let's lay some tracks down so when we're talking about our new identity in Christ, we, we have some understanding of, of what the implications of that uh, are and what that means. And then secondly, the four descriptors that we're going to look at, um, while not exhaustive, there are, I would say, broader implications if you begin to think about these, these, these markers of identity and read Scripture with them in view because you'll begin to see them popping up 
um, with varying implications and nuances throughout all of Scripture with respect to what it means to be the people of God. So, when we talk about having our new life in Christ as children of God, one of the, or probably one of the primary, let's say, markers of new identity we have in Christ is his family. We're family. Now, family is not a biblical word. It's a newer modern word. Like, if you read, for example, Scripture, you won't find the word family, but you will find the word household. And so in the New Testament, the, ho- the word household meant the same thing as we would say family does today. So we're members of the household of God. The, the Greek term there is oikos, which just means house. And so, for example, when Jesus shows up in the Gospel of John and he walks into the temple and he says, you have made my father's house a den of, the, or a den of thieves. And then at the end, towards the close of the Gospel of John, he's talking to the disciples and he says, I'm going to my father's house and there are many rooms for you, right? All that is carrying with it this idea of family. Now they use the word household, but nevertheless, we are family. God has given us all things in Christ. He holds nothing back from us. Remember Ephesians? We've been given every spiritual blessing in heavenly places because we have been brought together with Christ as brothers and sisters. We are co-heirs with Christ. Let that sink in. Co-heirs with Christ. So Colossians says that all things were made for, were made by, for, through, and are held together in Christ. So what is all things? All things. So if we're co-heirs with Christ, what belongs to us? All things. Everything. Everything. And in the book of Revelation, it talks about the church. And it uses the, the, the uh, plural pronoun, they, referencing the church. They will reign forever and ever. So God's plan is the church. We will reign and rule over the creation as God's image bearers in Christ. This is why, for example, earlier in the book of Revelation, when Jesus is encouraging the church, he says, as I have sat, like, I'm going to mess it up, but basically he's like, as I sat on my Father's throne, you shall sit on mine. And, and, and all this is, is an extension of what it means to now be family and to be co-heirs, co-regents, um, brothers and sisters in Christ. Practically, what this means for us then as the church is that um, as family, it's our responsibility to look out for one another's physical and spiritual needs, to care for one another, um, to share all things in common. When one mourns, all mourn. When one rejoices, all rejoice. And that we are seeking to look out for one another as family members. So we're family. Second thing we would say is we're disciples. Uh, You will find this word in the Bible. Uh, It's a pretty important word. Jesus himself even tells the disciples, I want you to go make disciples of all nations, teaching them and baptizing them in my name, teaching them everything that I've commanded them or I've commanded you. And and so the gospel teaches us that we're going to be lifelong students of Jesus. We're going to be looking to him, seeking to follow his guidance, to to submit ourselves to his his instruction through his word. And we're going to, and and what that means, then we're going to take the call to discipleship seriously. We take responsibility for our growth. I've always found it interesting. If you read the book of Hebrews, um, there's this, uh, he, he does what no, they tell you no, no instructor or teacher should ever do. He's writing the church and he says, hey, we should be talking about these things and moving on from teachings of this, this, and this. He's like, but you're dull of hearing. He's like, you're dull of hearing. 
And I'm like, that's an interesting take. And, and so what scripture itself is communicating that we need to take responsibility for our discipleship. And, and that sometimes as simple as asking questions, seeking to understand it, uh, reading your Bible. Like, like I remember, uh, anyway, I don't want to go off on that tangent. Like we have it. We have it to be able to read. And when you study the Reformation and, and the people who shed their blood and died so that the Bible could be translated into the common tongue. Like, and we, we take it for granted. You know, and the most, we, most exposure we get is 15 to 20 minutes once a week, if that. It's like, man. Anyway. So we got to take our spiritual, we take responsibility for our growth in the gospel. Take, and also taking an interest in the growth of others. Like, don't just be selfish. Use your gifts and abilities to, to empower, to, to grow, to invest in others so that they might grow spiritually. And practically, this means two things. We seek to know God fully and by God's grace, understanding our own brokenness and need of grace, we seek to help others understand and grow in the gospel. So we're disciples. We're disciples who make disciples, is another way of saying it. Um, so we're family, we're disciples, we're servants. We're servants. This is one of the, the, the key things, for example, that the, the New Testament communicates with respect to who Jesus is. And the gospel, when we embrace it, we begin to understand and walk with Christ. It transforms us, ourselves, into humble servants who seek to follow in the way of Christ. Jesus took on the posture of a, of a servant. So, for example, in Philippians 2, um, our English translations translate the word doulos as servant. And I think it's a... I understand why. They're, they're trying to avoid um, baggage that we have because of our history as a nation with slavery and these other things. But the actual word is slave. And, and the... And the, there's a couple things that we miss there because in the early church, the, the majority of the church were actually slaves. And in Roman, Greco-Roman culture, the, a slave was a non-person. You, you weren't a thing. You were a thing. You were, you were a tool to be used with however the owner, your master, saw fit. And so for Paul in Philippians to say that, that when Christ came, he came in the, in the form of a slave is not only an insult to Roman, Greco-Roman thinking, but it it humanizes the slave, but it also sets an example for us with respect to the character and nature of God and how God functions and works and treats his people. He's a servant. He's a slave. Not because he has to be, because he, make, he condescends or humbles himself, becoming one for our benefit. And so looking at Christ, we ourselves adopt a similar posture in humility, joyful submission to God, to those around us, to one another, um, and we serve whomever God brings in our life. We do whatever needs doing, whenever it's needed, wherever it leads us. For the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. Um, so we're family, we're disciples, we're servants. And then lastly, we're missionaries. Missionary is not a term you'll find in the Bible, but I think it's a helpful one. Um, because the gospel and God's grace ultimately calls and empowers us to live as agents of hope, healing, proclaiming the gospel to a lost and broken world that has been ravaged by sin. And though we may not change the world in our lifetime, um, that's not the point. I would even say that, uh, and th this is something that's shifted in my thinking a little bit. I used to think that the, the church had, an, like, let's say, an obligation to make a difference. Please hear me. I'm not saying that we shouldn't seek to be agents of hope and good in the world. But that's honestly not our call. We're called to be faithful to God 
and we're called to proclaim his truth. And I do think that there should be an aspect of when people in the larger culture look at us and they see us, that they, they, there, there should be a, a certain tension where they go, I, I hate what you believe and say, but I can't ignore what you do. But the reality is, is there, there are, throughout history, even in our contemporary day, places that, like I used to hear, this is, the, this is where I was first exposed to this idea. They said, if your church closed down, would anyone in the community even care or notice? And I was like, man, that's a great, and then I thought more and more about it. And I was like, actually, there's places in the world where they'd rejoice because it's, there's persecution and there's these other things. Like, so I think that's a wrong way of thinking about how we're to live as the church. We're to be faithful. We're to serve others. We're to proclaim the gospel and let God decide what comes to pass. But it doesn't mean that we retreat and we run in fear and we hide and we don't seek to be a blessing to our neighbors. Like we're called to do those things, but not on the basis of we're going to get something from it, like our church is going to be held in high esteem, or we're going to be liked, or we're going to be favored, or whatever. In fact, this is the exact, exact opposite. We should do those things knowing it might come at personal cost to us. It might cost us relationships, a job, money. We might be persecuted. But why? For the glory of God. So we're missionaries, and we labor in hope and joy with the Spirit of God to bring about healing and restoration in one another in our world, trusting that ultimately the, the, the end of those things, let's say, is going to be brought to completion in Christ. So if we were to kind of sum all this up, I would say that we're no longer who we once were, but we are now a family of disciples living as missionary servants for the glory of God and the renewal of all things for the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. Now, when I say this, this is not, hear me, this is not what we're striving to be. This is who we are. This is who we are. And we want to live out of this foundational truth and, and to strive out of these things that God has done for us. Now, granted, on the surface, it's going to look very much the same because there's still an effort that's being given. There's still a striving. There's still junk that has to be dealt with in terms of like our own sin, our insecurities, our fears, and all those things, that baggage that we bring in that prevents us from actually living like this. And so while on the surface it may look very similar, the, the internal posture of it I think is very different because it's not that we're striving to become this. It's that we're striving to live out of what we've already been made to be. Does that make sense? This is who we are. This is who you are. This is who God has declared and made you to be in Christ. Now, is there work to be done so that you're in conformity to these things? Yes and amen. But does your, does your coming up short of being this change the fact that this is who you are? Not at all. And I'll close with a story. I one time went to a church. I may have shared this before. And, and the sermon that Sunday was on the importance of sharing the gospel. And I was like, fantastic. I love these kinds of messages. I think it's important to share the gospel. I'm excited for this message. So I spent about 30 minutes listening to a sermon, and if I were to summarize it in one sentence, it's this. You need to share the gospel with others, and if you don't, you stink. <laughs> and I was like, he spent 30 minutes shaming and guilting everyone in the room to go and share the message about the one who lifts shame and guilt. How do you do that? 
Like, how, how do you preach a message that you clearly don't understand? Because you're trying to motivate your people by whipping them and shaming them and guilting them to talk about the one who lifts shame and guilt. Like, do you realize how insane that is? And it's a big church! It's growing! And it's still growing! And if you talk to people, they're like, this is an amazing church! I'm like, no! It's not an amazing church! Because they don't understand the gospel! They're preaching works! And he's cracking a whip to drive you, and you don't even see it! Don't ever lose grasp of the gospel! Oh my gosh, I could yell about this for days. <laughs> it is what Christ has done for you and for me. Grab hold of that and don't let anybody take that from you. You are justified. You are adopted. You are sons and daughters. We are these things. And we are going to fall short every day. And that doesn't mean that our standing with God has changed. And it... And it Boggles my mind, boggles my mind that you could sit there and talk about Jesus who came and died, who justified sinners, who gave his life for those who hated him so that we could be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom of glory and light. And then we would be brought out of being children of wrath to being sons and daughters of, of the God. And then you could talk about the gospel in Jesus for 30 minutes and the whole time. You're, you're manipulating and, and shaming and guilting people. I wanted to walk up on the stage and grab a guy by his collar and smack him. We didn't go back to that church, obviously. But please understand, justification and adoption in the gospel are foundational, critical, and essential doctrines. And the minutia of it matters. It matters. And that's why the Reformation took place, and that's why throughout, from that point forward, you'll find men and women arguing violently, not with violence, but like with, with passion, to, to not waver on, on understanding justification and adoption and our standing with God in Christ because it's so critical and essential. And, and we've, yeah, anyway. So let me pray. I'm not going to yell at you anymore. Uh, Father, we ask that you would bless us, Lord, that your spirit would enlighten our hearts, open our eyes, and that we would see the glory of the gospel. Lord, that we would plant our flag on the foundation of our justification and adoption in Christ. And that, Lord, in that sense of security we have as your children, that we would grab hold of you, and, Lord, that we would rest in you, and that out of what you have done for us and out of who you have made us to be, we would strive not to become, but strive out of these things so that you might receive glory and honor and renown. And it's in Jesus' great name we pray. Amen. Amen.